What is up, everybody? Welcome to Boardroom Out of Office podcast number two. Let's go. What's up, G? What's up, Rich? I'm chilling, man. I was dominant on the tennis court today, bro. Oh, yeah? Who'd you play? I'm playing all the time. Like, once I stop playing pickup basketball, because I just can't do it anymore. I'm just not good. And I feel like shit when I'm done. I've, like, locked in on tennis. I want to be a really, really good adult tennis player. So I've been playing in some doubles matches out here, little singles, and I'm I'm nice. I got two rackets now, which means you're good. No, nah, I can't even front. Rich and I played one time in Jamaica, and he whooped my ass. So, Rich, you're, I can vouch for your tennis skills. Thank you. And then what else did I whoop your ass in that trip? Uh, not, ping I was going to say not ping pong. I'm pretty sure we're pretty even at ping pong. Yo, you're bugging. I, it, we, I was up like 15 to 6 in game. Stop. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I still think we are pretty similar in ping pong. Yeah. Well, you're lying to yourself. Um, bro. Jack Dorsey was a dope guest, man. That was a lot of fun. And today we are talking to Glenn Doc Rivers. I'm going to talk to Glenn today about the Hamptons, the free agency, which I think will be fun as hell. He was traded for uh, my favorite basketball player as a kid ever, and I hated him because of it. But I got to know him, and he's honestly, he's one of those like just, they glow. You know what I'm saying? He's different. He's His voice, his leadership, his presence in our culture is so important. Man, I'm excited. Do you know him at all? Uh, I know he won a chip. That's for sure. In Boston? Yeah. That's all you know? I know a little bit more about that. I know he's got a son in the league. Yep. I know his daughter works at CAA, comes from a Ooh. basketball family. I know a better, oh. a thing or two. All right, well, let's get Doc out here, man. You prepared a bit. All right, let's do this, Doc. You ready? Yeah. Doc Rivers, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, man. It's a real honor to have you on. I appreciate you doing this. And I have to tell you before we start, I feel like we've hung out enough where I haven't told you one thing. 1991, I am a 14-year-old diehard Nick fan. My favorite player in the NBA, well-documented, Mark Jackson. Oh, boy. And I remember I'm waiting to go to school one day, and I see in the newspaper in the National, Doc Rivers is coming to New York for my man, Mark Jackson. I was devastated, man. I'm not going to lie to you. I was devastated. Well, I get that. Uh, Mark, first of all, Mark was a hell of a player, you know, number one. They did need a better defensive player. Like, come on. They, they, <laughs> they needed someone to try to help John Starks slow down Jordan. Yes, it didn't work, but it was a good thought. Yeah, I, I didn't get it then. I didn't get defense then. I've told Mark now through the years, because I've also, I get to hang with him and Jeff like during the Warriors run. Yeah. Uh, pre-game, me getting to talk to Mark and Jeff, a New Yorker, this was like a dream. So I used to give Jeff Van Gundy a hard time for benching him in the fourth quarter, and he was trying to explain to me what it meant to have a defensive point guard on the floor, man. <laughs> he needed a stop. He needed a stop. <laughs> so what were those Nick years like, man? Oh, Rich, they were the best. I mean, I, I say it all the time. The Nick years changed my life. I don't think I'm here if I don't go play the Nick. So or really, it was Pat Riley. Let's just keep that real. Um, I was going to be a broadcaster. I'd studied. That's what I'd studied. Uh, I had done internships, uh, playing for the Hawks uh, with Turner. That was where I was headed. Then all of a sudden, I get traded to the Knicks, and I play for this Pat Riley guy. And I just fall in love with the way he coached and the way he did things. And that's what really got me started into thinking, you know what? I want to coach. I want to be a coach. I want to be like that. If I can lead like this dude, then, then I can be a really good coach. And so that's what changed me. So 
But those years were amazing. If you remember, the Rangers were great. They won the Stanley Cup. We went to the finals against Houston. You know, the game that still haunts me to this day, game five. And there's so many things. I mean, everybody gets to the end of it with the Charles Smith, the layups. But there were so many little things. I got picked in. I think B.J. Armstrong got a three because I was sinking in. I always shot the technical fouls for our team that year. Uh, there were two illegal defenses. Mm-hmm. I only rested four minutes, <laughs> and we missed both of them. Those were the two mi- the four minutes I was off the floor. Oh my! And we God. missed like both of those free throws. So it's just really small things when you're a player. You think about all those little things that came back to haunt you. But I, I, I swear, I mean, they won. So I've learned if if they win, you have to give it to them. But I always thought that we were the team that should have beat uh, the Bulls. I agree. I mean, ninety three. The Knicks were favorite, their home court. That was unheard of in the Bulls era. Yeah, we won, I think, the last game of the year. We had a better season than the the Bulls. And listen, we had it all. We had our chance. We got up 2-0. I do think, uh, watching that documentary, the thing that stood out to me was that break. You know, I didn't even think they did it enough justice. You know, they talked about the uh, Jordan golfing. But I think there were four days between game two and three, and for those four days, the media, they just bashed Jordan. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that served well for us. And Charles Smith took all the blame, but it wasn't that. Yeah, he still does. It's amazing. I know. It's crazy. What's crazy is that, you know, obviously, the whole media thought Kevin was going to the Knicks last year, and the media will take a narrative and do what it needs to. But even in my small little universe, Nick fans are so loyal and love their team with a passion that's hard to explain, that the torment that I'm still given in comments, and my followers aren't what yours are and what KD's are, but people torment me about the fact that they think I kept Kevin from going to the Knicks. Well, I did think, you know, early on, I was like, okay, Rich is from New York. He can be the king of New York City. I got a feeling KD's going to the Knicks. Yeah, listen, I'm in the league, and I actually thought that. So you know everybody else thought it as well. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Well, let let me, talking about free agency, the first time we met was in the Hamptons. And for anybody listening, and Gianni, what do you know about Kevin's Hampton free agency? Do you remember it? You were, what, 21? Yeah, it was like an era right after he left Thunder. It was all up in the air where he was going to go. I don't remember like that. I think it was a short period before he actually made his decision. And then uh, I just remember all the backlash after. Doc, he was in the clubs. He doesn't all the way remember. No, he was too young. He was partying at the time. He cannot remember that. You remember. You remember the bashing after, but you don't remember the moment. Well, we went to the Hamptons, and the whole reason we ended up there, because it seems so bougie and like inappropriate now, like the fact that we did that. But it honestly was like Kevin and I are from the East Coast. He wanted to be on the East Coast and close to his family, but he was flexible he's a chill dude you know that and i said well my family's out here i'd love to make this happen and we got this house and every person i idolized growing up was in that room i had a job to do but here's doc rivers pat riley alonzo morning greg popovich it was incredible i mean what did you think it was a spectacle honestly was it too much the thing i thought was that we were not going to get him, but i thought i believe in myself and i believe in steve bomber and I thought, get us in a room, and, and we're going to make a run at this. Uh, it was a hilarious thing because you guys, you kind of <laughs> sprung it on everybody. Like, you didn't give us a month to prepare 
he told us like four days we're going to be in a hamper. <laughs> and what was hilarious about it, I I know like Oklahoma was staying at a, like a Motel Six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> we were the only one because my buddy, I think you know Jimmy Haber. Yeah. My buddy Jimmy Haber is a, me- a member at uh, what's the golf course? I can't think of it. It doesn't matter. We were at the cabins. Okay. So he gave us the cabins to stay in. So Steve and I, like, we're chipping and we're on the route, we're golfing, we're, <laughs> we're going to the clubhouse, we're, we're living the life. Yeah. And I don't even think you knew this, but after we had our meeting, you know, we were going to leave and Steve says, no, we're staying. We're staying until you guys make a decision. So we stayed three more days in the Hamptons. <laughs> uh, Sabonic. It was Sabonic. Yeah, Sabonic yeah, yeah. We stayed three more days in the Hamptons and golfed every day. So for me, I was like, not all bad. I, I can live with it. <laughs> That was, I got to tell you, like, there's been moments in my career because I really, I, I know I still have so far in my journey to go and I like to set goals for myself, but I've also tried to really focus on like being self-aware and understanding what I have done, what more I still need to do. And it's tough because especially in a social media age, you can believe that like what you see on Instagram is your life, like who you follow is your life, but you got to get a real gauge of it. And when I was in that house that day, no one could have told me anything like I had made it like when I grew up I wanted to just be around sports I wanted to be regarded in the industry I wanted to be able to go to a Nick game and be able to dap up the coach when he walked in and the guy across the you know the court sitting courtside and it it wasn't I didn't want I didn't care about money I didn't want to make money I just the rush of that I wanted that you mentioned Pat Riley is like giving you inspiration to coach you obviously were a leader before that but growing up with basketball, obviously, as the backdrop, what did you want from your life? Like, what were your expectations and what did you want? You know, that's a, that's a great question. You know, and I don't know, honestly, and I'm being very frank, I don't know if a young black kid has a lot of wants early. He, he just wants to, to get out of the neighborhood. Like, it's, it's funny how we think at times. And then, no, for me, I wanted to be a pro basketball player. That was it. I, I went to, I grew up in the Chicago, uh, uh, in a suburb of Chicago called Maywood. Uh, it's a high school there called Proviso East. There's been 11 NBA players to come out of that one high school. And it's not a recruiting high school. It's not one of those, you know, high schools that bring in. It's just kids that live in the local area. You know, Michael Finley, Javon Carter. I mean, we can go down the list of guys. And so my uncle, Jim Brewer, was the first one. And, you know, I went to every high school game that Proviso East played from the time I was in second grade. Every game. I never missed a game. I missed one because I was on punishment. My, that's how my parents punished me, uh, was not letting me go to the games on Saturday, Friday, and Saturday. So that was the whole reason. And so for me, that was the difference, was that um, I just wanted to be a basketball player. And, you know, you learn stuff through that. Like, uh, well, you got to go to school to be a basketball player, you know. And my parents really pushed me. I had a dad who was a police officer. Uh, my mom was a assembly line worker and you know they were very strong on education so I was very lucky in, in that aspect was your father being a police officer and he was a lieutenant right yeah was the leadership that is so evident I mean I think you're not NBA leader at this point you're a, a leader in our society you're a voice that people rely on for some calm and comfort and direction did you get that from your dad was it innate yeah it, it was from my dad it was from my, my mom was a very religious lady. So, you know, every morning, the Bible verses, the, you know, every morning there was something. But my dad was the leader. Like, my dad was the leader of the community. 
Uh, he really was. It, it's, it's what we need now. We need our police officers to walk down the street and they say, hey, Sergeant Rivers, how are you? Um, my dad coached the football team, the baseball team, the basketball teams uh, growing up. He, he had a club that, that for kids that would all go to, you know. And, you know, when I hung out with my dad, like he was a celebrity in town. Everyone knew him. You know, it's what we don't have now. It's the exact opposite of that. And my dad was a very principled guy. Like, he was extremely principled. And when he became a lieutenant, I remember I have a picture at my house where it's his first day in his police outfit, you know, and, and he has nine black officers standing there at salute to him. Like, that was a proud day for him, you know. And I remember him saying years later that he was not going to let them down. Uh, by corruption like he, that was a big thing for him and so now when you hear all this stuff man I, I wish my dad was alive uh to share stories is your mother still alive no my mom passed about five years ago so uh it's funny it was my dad and you know you, you've been around when when two people are married for so long and then one person passes the other one goes and that's exactly what happened in our family broken heart it's real yeah that's exactly right well, so, you know, it's funny. I was looking at your stats earlier. You, in my opinion, live in this like group of players that there's a whole combination of things, the way you played, how you carried yourself, when you hit shots, your name, your nickname, everything about you that I, I honestly, if you're, if you had averaged 22 and 13 for your career, I wasn't going to be surprised. Like I didn't yeah. remember it that way. And what point guards did then was different and what was expected was different, but you had this great career and you were a leader in your career. You got it from your dad, but you said it was only Pat Riley that really inspired that. And I, I always think, because like, what do you think it is for players? Because I started to ask Kevin. Like I've started to like ask him, do you get the coaching thing? Because when you get NBA savants, people that are the best at what they do, it's so weird to me that some people just instantly gravitate towards wanting to still be in the gym and coach, and some don't. You didn't feel it till you met Pat Riley. What is the difference? Like, what, what is that, you think? You know, I think in all of our lives, there's somebody that touches you. You know, you find me a successful person, and I'll find you someone who touched him. Sometimes it's not intentional. Like, I don't think Pat Riley was coaching me so I could be a coach. But Pat Riley was the first guy in one of our last meetings uh, when he was going to release me. He said, you know, you're going to be a coach. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to be a coach. Uh, we actually had an argument about it. We we're going back and forth. I said, coach, no offense, but you, you are absolutely, you're nuts. You're, you're like a little crazy. <laughs> and, and I don't want to be that. And he said, it's in you. Uh, you're going to be a coach. You cannot not be a coach. And so you know, it's funny. When I retired, I did three years for TNT, right? And every time we did a heat game, Rouse would walk in. You're going to get in the fray. You cannot not be in the fray, Doc. You have to be. And so when I signed with the Magic, my first, the first phone call that I got was Pat Ryan. I didn't even want to answer the phone because I, I knew what he was going to say. You knew exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah. I get, it must be that only a coach and a coach of that caliber can spot that, whether the person knows it or not, and see it in them. I think there's truth to that. You know, uh, you think about it. I coached Ty Lue for 10 games. 10 games. Uh, didn't know him, had never met him until I coached him. Right before I left, I told him, hey, you're going to be a coach. And he started laughing. Uh, and I said, no, you are. Uh, when you retire, give me a call. I don't care where I'm at. 
Uh, I don't care if I have 15 coaches on my staff, I'll make room for you, but you have to make the call. And so, you know, I'm sitting in Boston and, and Ty Lue gets released. Yeah. He gives me a call. And like, this is mid-season. And so I, um, I called Danny Ainge and I said, hey, Danny, I'm hiring Ty Lue. And he's like, for what? That's funny. And I was like, you knew it. I'm bringing him on staff as an assistant coach. And then it was like, we, we, we already have too many coaches. I said, I, I know it, but I'm keeping my word. And I think this guy is going to be special. So now Ty Lue is going to have to spot the next generation, keep it going from Riley. Exactly and I'm sure, right. who is it that got Riley? Is it Adolph Rupp? Someone that got Riley, like that whole... You know, I'm going to say Adolph Rupp would probably be the guy, but it, it may have been his father who he talked about who was a very tough man in his life. You know, maybe not his favorite man, but very tough guy. So I'm going to say it's going to be one of those, but I don't know who... Pat Riley was the best speaker in front of a team that I've ever seen. No, you play 82 regular season games. It's tough to be good every night. And uh, I can't recall him having a bad night. You know, he was just fantastic uh, with his motivation. The secret that Pat Riley taught me that I wish that I wish I had had this connection as a player. Like, I wish I could have figured this out as a player. His secret is he gets you to want to run through a wall for him. He gets you to let your guard down and give yourself to the team and buy in to the principles uh, because you believe if you do that, then you'll have success. And it's an amazing thing that he can do, but he did it. Um, and I always look back on my career and I was, you know, listen, I, I could have scored more. I could have done things, but I was a point guard. And in our day, you knew your role. Like you, you just accepted your role and you did your role. Playing for Pat, man, I always said, I wish I could have caught him like in my fourth or fifth year, like when I was really starting to roll, uh, man, it would have been, it, I, I could have been a serious ball player. Yeah, you were a serious ball player, but I know what you mean. <laughs> well, so when you talk about like how Pat Riley got you motivated for 82 games, and I think I've even seen you quoted on that before too, or, or someone else then said it on like how hard it is game 53 in sack, you know, on a back-to-back after playing in the Lakers the night before to get, people motivated the same way and also to have them buy into all team when you're in the NBA now. And I think it's similar to like being a CEO of a company. When you have people that work for you, you want to get them to run into the wall, but you do have to know that they have, and they want things for themselves. They want to achieve certain successes. And you, I don't think we're in a day and age in the NBA and business where you can tell people like, no, 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 this is about the team. Like, because people want the best for themselves. And, and in the case of people that are doing it to make money that they never saw before to support generations of family, it's important. So how do you juggle that and get people to buy in? Well, it's, it's a tough act. It helps to have high character players. It also, I've learned that my job is to try to get the player to understand who he is. Like, I think a lot of players spend way too much time uh, trying to be the star and they'll never be the star. And, and in that chase, they don't fit in. Uh, they get traded around because they haven't bought in to playing a role. Listen, being a role player in the NBA is not all bad. It's really good. And I, I, I've learned that 99% of the players in the NBA are role players. And then you have your one percenters. You know, on every team, you have a couple, maybe one or two one percenters. And then everybody else are 
elite role players. And that role, role that name, they don't like it. They don't like that name, you know. But once they buy into it, they can be a star inside their role. And so if you're running a company, uh, you got to get your employees to understand, no, you can be a star inside your role. But if you try to do my job, uh, or if you try to take his job, then the company doesn't work and you fail. Mm -hmm. But if you do your job and you become a star in that, we all are successful. You make a lot of money. And, you know, eventually, if you do really well and our company does very well, you may have to leave and get a huge contract. Yeah, And, and that's okay. One of the things, I, you can ask every player, I want them to get paid, every single one of them. Um, and I tell them that. I've told players to turn down our deal. You know, uh, I've said that. Uh, I don't know if this is a good deal for you. I have, this is all we're going to pay you. But I personally would probably yeah. look out. And it's amazing. Some of those guys have and come back, and some of them have left. And I'm good with that because my job for me is to make that guy the best player possible, uh, a winner, hopefully, and to be able to take yeah. care of his family. And, and I look yeah. at it that way. But I, I think with that, like being self-aware and as a leader, having to make players or employees be self-aware and understand it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. And there's some that just won't ever be. Yep. You know, there's so many players that should have had a career in our league, but they just would not give up the chase. I'm better than him, or I should get this. I should get this. And, and they end up out of the league. And yeah. I bet when they sit back, they're bitter because they're blaming everyone else for their failures instead of understanding, well, maybe I wasn't as good as yeah. I thought I was. Now, it's a trick there, too, because you have to believe in yourself. You know, you really do. You have to believe in yourself to be good. But there's a point in your life where you have to be real with yourself as well. Yeah. Uh, and to me, the guys who get it have unbelievable careers. They're there for 15 years, even when they can't play anymore because they're such good guys on the team and good role players. They scratch out two more years, you know? And the guys who don't get it, they go quick. You know, it's funny. It's like, um, so Gianni, you're 25. You worked at Apple before coming to work with Kevin and I. And let's say this decision ends up not being the right one. I doubt that's going to happen, G, but let's say it happens. He'll have ample time in his life to pivot and make turns and make up for the decision. It's a lot for NBA guys, if you think about it, when they're 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. They're talking to people like yourself they looked up to. There's players on their team they've looked up to. They feel inside like they can go, and they got to make a decision like, well, I should take the seven a year for four years because I'm going to have kids and get married one day, but you can't make decisions like that, and then you don't really have a way back in sometimes, and that, I think, is scary. It is scary, and you know, for, for a young player, uh, security is so important. For anybody, you know, it doesn't have to be an athlete. Uh, a five-year deal, a 10-year deal makes you feel a lot more secure about yourself. Uh, you know, and also for, from a player and coach standpoint, you know, the old saying that Kevin Garnett used to use all the time, pay a guy and he'll show you exactly who he really is. You know, uh, yeah. there's, there's a lot of truth to that as well. And so from this side, of, you have to be very careful 
there's guys who absolutely love it. And I would say most of them do. And then there's guys who love it, but they love the fanfare more, mm-hmm. you know, and those are the guys that the, you sign them, you'll regret it. And so it's, it's a tough business that way, but there's no doubt that there's some tough decisions that these young guys have to make. Um, and, you know, in our day, we all went for security. Well, if you thought back on that, I remember I was, I could have been a free agent um, in the year that I made the all-star team. So think about that. And I signed an extension in the middle of the season. And before I signed that extension, Red Albach walked up to me in a restaurant in Boston. We were going to play the Celtics the night before. And it was tampering because he basically <laughs> said, hey, Doc, Red Albach, I just want you to know I'm a huge fan. And I just noticed you're going to be a free agent this summer. <laughs> and he's like, wow, man. And then he walked away. Wow. So, I mean, he was telling me. But I still signed back with the Hawks, you know. Yep. Um, which Because back then we, we had this – this blind loyalty to the franchise where if you thought back, you know, it's funny, these players get heat now for leaving. I, I think free agency is great. Yeah, uh, I'm, in, I'm in the minority in that thinking. But, you know, players have worked their butt off. And the guys who have the ability to become a free agent, do it, you know. Uh, ask for stuff. Be demanding. And then once you get back with the team, you go back and do your job, you know. I have no problem with guys being free. I've lost free agents, and, and I've got some. You know, we got quiet right now. So you win some and you lose some. But it also holds the organizations accountable because of it, where before organizations didn't have to be accountable. Guys were, were signing for eight, nine years, and you own them. Now you have to, you have to act right, yeah. you know. And I, and I love it because it's starting to happen in college too, finally. Finally. These, these college coaches are going to have to act right or these guys are going to leave yep. and they're going to transfer or they're, they're not, you know, they're going to go G league. They're going to do that. And I love it. I think it's great. Yep. So with that kind of feeling of like the 1% you spoke about when you went to Boston, you had three of the 1% yeah. or eventually in your third year, you ended up getting mm-hmm. three, right? It was a third year. Uh, third year. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the first time you were managing players and talent of that caliber? Because, again, the same parallel as a business grows and people grow within the infrastructure, that there's stars that arise and you're talking to people different at certain points in their career. Was that a kind of like moment yeah. for you as a coach? That was the moment because I had always been a builder. You know, when I signed with uh, Orlando, we, we basically gutted the team. You know, I think the year I went coach of the year, I think we made 47 transactions. I mean, we were trade people daily. Like, we were just – if you had a contract that was over a year, you're out, period. We didn't know how, care how good you were. And we ended up going 500 that year. And then that summer, we get Grant Hill and Tracy McGrady. So, you know, that's all I have done, you know, because Grant was never healthy. I never got a chance to coach the talent. Yep. And so I come to Boston with that plan. Danny and I had already – we knew exactly what we wanted to try to do. And then when I got it, yeah, that was my time. Like, it was the first time that I was going to have the ability to coach talent. You know, I'd always been 500. I've always won. But I never had a team where I could be the winner. And so finally, we get these three guys. And so now, uh, it's funny, though, how people think. And, Rich, you, you know that you guys, and especially with, with the guys you have, oh, people walk up to you. Man, now the pressure is on. 
And I'm like, pressure, bro, pressure's losing. Uh, this is a privilege. Pressure, yep. pressure to me is a privilege. Like to me, if you can work yourself into a pressure situation, you should look at it as a privilege because you don't get that opportunity to have that quote unquote pressure very often. So when you get it, you should look at it as a privilege. And that's how I looked at it. But I knew right away, like I had to get Paul, Kevin and Ray uh, to play together mm-hmm. and want to win and, and to sacrifice. And, you know, I, um, I did that boat trip that you probably in Boston, if you win it, you ride the, the duck yep. boats. And so where my apartment was, everybody went by my apartment on parades. So I came up with the idea was I had Kevin, Paul and Ray meet me at 8 a.m. at my apartment and we get on this duck boat. We're going down the middle of Boston in this duck boat that goes down into the water, comes out. Kevin's him after me because he's like, what the, what the hell are we doing this crap for? You know? Yeah. And so I explained to him that we had just taken the exact parade route that we're going to take after the season was over. And when I said that, it got quiet. Yeah. It got quiet. And I said, having said that, to be able to do that, there's required work that has to be done. And you guys each, you're going to have to give up something because you ain't going to each get 30 shots this year. So who's willing to give up their shots? And Kevin said, you can have all mine. Wow. It was amazing. He literally said that. He said, you can have everyone. If you tell me that if I give up every shot I'm going to win, you can have every one of my shots. And when he said that, I knew we were good. I bet Paul and Ray didn't say that. <laughs> no, no. It's funny. We, <laughs> we, we laugh about it today, Rich, because – they laugh like they're like, thank God Kevin said that. <laughs> That's amazing. And he knew that too. That's a good leader right yeah, there. He did know that. <laughs> Listen, the one thing I've learned if I'm ever not a coach but in management, when you hire someone, let them do their job. Uh, let them hire their staff. Let them fail or be successful uh, their way. That doesn't mean you can't be a team. Like Danny and I were a great team. We would fight over stuff and then go out to dinner. Yeah. You know, we would – we would discuss stuff and go out to dinner. It was never anything but teamwork. And that's what I learned. Like, I didn't do that well in, in, in Orlando, my first job. I didn't trust enough to let anybody else in, like the GM or the president. So I just, I kept them away. Yep. And then that was, you know, you learn stuff. And, and I learned that, listen, you have to trust and become a team with everybody or it's not going to work. Yeah. No, I, I'm sure it's no different from you. Like the same things that any entrepreneur in same way I felt earlier in my career where I didn't make it about me, but not in a selfless way. I was worried yeah. about everybody else and every other circumstance and then yeah. found a certain confidence where you realize like there's no more FOMO. You can't worry about how much that guy's got or who's doing this. I have to like hone in on our vision and our, and our plan. Yeah, I've lived my life knowing this. You can't live life uh with a scorecard like you can't be keeping score on everybody else just keep your score yeah you know and if you do that you're going to be fine like uh but there's so many players like that and coaches and management that they watch what everybody else is doing and then compare and Mm -hmm. say you know the player hey this guy gets this many shots and this you know and and players who play for me will tell you i'm very honest Uh, i've literally said well he's better (laughs) <laughs> and that's why he gets more shots, you know, uh, like, because when I was a player, I loved coaches that were real. Just, you know, Doc, you suck right now and, and you shouldn't play. Yeah. Okay. I can deal with that. 
because uh, I can go work and get my time back. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. I've always believed that. Just give it to me. And some yep. guys handle that. You learn, and some guys do not handle that very well. And the guys that don't probably don't do well with me. Yeah. You mentioned your coaches. You know, we had a fantasy camp, and Mike Fratello was one of the uh, fantasy coaches. Yeah. Oh, my God. You had to see him get on these 50-year-old men during timeouts. I- I've lived that. I've oh, my that God. You know, but Mike was great for me because Mike wrote me. You know, first of all, I was a two-guard in college. I was a scorer. Yeah. You know, if, I, if I'd stayed one more year at Marquette, I would have been the leading scorer in Marquette history. And then I, I get drafted. I answer the phone, and Mike says, hey, you're going to be our point guard next year. And I'm like, you know, whatever. You know, yeah, I've never yeah. played point guard. I, I have never played point guard in my life. But I'm thinking that means I'm in the NBA. I'm going to do whatever. Yeah. And so Mike saw it. He saw that I could be a point guard. And he was right. But I didn't know it at the time. And so, boy, I tell you, those first three years of Mike Fratello, Crazy. you have to have a strong – boy, you have to be strong because – he would threaten me. And, I mean, he was tough on me, but in a very good way. He was so funny, man. That dude is amazing. <laughs> you were definitely like a tall point guard back then, like the way you kind of were thought of. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, uh, today I was, uh, you know, the one great thing about the bubble, you can be walking down the hallway and you run into people, yeah. you know. And so, like, today I literally bumped into to Russell uh, Westbrook. And we were talking and I stood next to him and I said, damn. You're a big point guard. <laughs> uh, and he's like, I know you were big. He said, but back in my era, point guards were my size. Yeah, you know, we didn't have the little, we, you know, you think about it, Derek Harper, uh, Alvin Robinson, Magic. There were a lot yeah, of big yeah, point yeah, guards. Yeah. We didn't have those little guys until they changed the rules. When they changed the rules and took out the hand check, the little speed guys came. Yep. Because before, yep. we could pick them up and throw them like, you can, like, grab a little point guard and throw him out of bounds if you wanted to. Yep. And then when they took the hand-checking rules away, Rich, I remember telling Pop, because I was with San Antonio, they first they took the hand-check, but we could still use our forearm and chuck. And in my 13th year, they took the, the, the forearm away, and I remember telling Pop, you know, time for me to retire. I'm out. <laughs> These guys are too, they're too yeah. fast. <laughs> Crazy. If you couldn't move your feet, you were out. Well, L.A., I want to ask you a question about you, your business for a second, because, you know, you have a family of four kids. You became very famous after Boston. I mean, you were famous in NBA circles, but you became famous and well-known and respected and went into a new kind of echelon, I think, in terms of just your presence and, again, in society. Did L.A. start to bring about like a thought more about your business and your life, your career, investing, what you wanted to do? Yeah, you know what L.A. did was um, I've been in Boston for nine years and, and could have stayed. Dan and I, we, to this day, we talk probably once or twice a week, you know. But after nine years, Rich, I felt like I need something else. I needed to, to try something else. And, you know, there were like three or four jobs opening, uh, but the Clippers were good. They had talent, but their organization was a mess. Uh, it was the losingest franchise in the history of sports. And their owner was nuts. And I went in there thinking, because my ego was probably way too big, I'm thinking, if I can turn this around, like, this is the challenge that I need. And 
I'm, I'm being honest. Like I, I was there for a week before I realized, oh my God, I made a mistake. Like, and I'm being honest. Like, even though I had the talent of Chris and Blake and, and DJ, but a week in that organization, I literally said, oh my God, I called my agents and Lonnie Cooper. I said, man, we, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to survive this. I don't know what's going to happen here, but this, this organization is horrendous. What were some of the red flags going on with the Clippers in comparison to the Celtics? There, there was just organizationally, there were so many, but I, the key ones is, you know, first day I, I come in, I'm going to have a talk with DJ, DeAndre Jordan. And I remember uh, Andy Rosa, the president, laughing, like, okay, good luck. Like they had already given up on him. Tried to get his number. And you, like each person in the organization had like three numbers. Somebody else had four numbers of the players. They didn't have like one person with everybody's numbers because everyone who had their numbers, they kept them because they felt if they had a relationship with that player, then they keep their jobs. I mean, that's how insane it was. And so me and DJ have that talk that went amazing. And I come back and like, I love this guy. But the biggest one was what turned it around was the seventh or eighth day there. We make a trade uh, for J.J. Reddick. Trade is finalized. I get on as Bledsoe because Bledsoe was going to be a free agent. So after I get the job, I, my first meeting, uh, Andy Rosen tells me, hey, we're going to have to trade Eric Bledsoe. And I was like, why? I like Eric. I want him to stay here. No, he's going to ask for too much money. We're not going to pay him. At that time, I thought we needed the shooter. They wanted to do it. I said, fine. We get J.J. Reddick. I fly back to Orlando to go home. I land. Andy Roser calls me and says, hey, the J.J. Reddick deal's off. I said, what can't be? We just did it. J.J. just reneged on Minnesota and decided to sign with us as a free agent. He said, well, Donald Sterling doesn't like white players. And I'm like, what? What? And he said, no, he just doesn't. He doesn't like white players. Uh, he didn't think they, any of them can play. And I said, you know, there was a Larry Bird that played, you know, I'm yeah. like being sarcastic. And uh, he said, hey, Doc, what can I do? And he hung up. So I, get, I pick up the phone and I call Donald Sterling. And we have a 30-minute all-out brawl. It was nuts, though. I mean, he was saying things like, I got a great reputation, Doc. Don't worry about it. We can change your mind. I mean, it was nuts. And it came down to, at the end of the conversation, I said, if we don't, commit to J.J. Reddick and honor our word, I quit. I've been on the job seven days. And so I hang up the phone. I drive home. I go in to my wife at the time and tell her, I don't think I got a job anymore. I call Lonnie and say, Lonnie, I, I'm pretty sure I'm no longer the coach of the Clippers because I just quit. And Lonnie's like, what? And I tell him the whole story. And 10 minutes later, I get a phone call from Andy. He said, hey, great news. I don't know what happened, but JJ's in. All good. That was it. Wow. It was crazy. Did you ask him on that call, what do you mean you don't like white players? Like well, Andy told me that. Uh, Donald Sterling just said he heard from his friends that JJ's not that good player. Oh, you know, my God. I said, but Donald, it doesn't matter. We've already – this guy was about to sign a free agent deal with Minnesota. We talked him out of it, and now he's agreed with us. We can't. If we go back on our word, we will never get another free agent the rest of the time I'm here. And so don't, that's when he made the comment, don't worry, Doc, I have the best reputation. And that's when I knew, if this guy thinks he has a good reputation, 
then then we got problems. We're in some shit here, yeah. Yeah. So honestly, the end of that year with the whole thing that happened was just I'm the luckiest man around. I mean, it gets deep bomb. Well, so that to me represents. I mean, again, it's got to be one of. It will go down as one of the saddest in some ways, and also one of the most like powerful moments in NBA history. I think there was a real shift. Yeah. Um, that you know, you and Chris were at the forefront, and incredibly insane situation. I remember watching it unfold, and. Well, A, I want to ask you, like, you, you couldn't have been surprised when you heard that message, right? You knew, I mean, obviously, I could hear this. I, I was surprised, honestly. I, I had heard about Donald's past, uh, but I didn't really, and, and it's probably my fault, I didn't really look into it like I should have. As a matter of fact, Andy Roser calls me about four days before this tape comes out and says, hey, Doc, there's a, a tape coming out with Donald uh, that can be a little bit embarrassing, but it's not a big deal. And this is what he told me. So I'm just like, okay, you know, I'm clueless. I'm thinking, all right. The day before it came out, our PR guy, uh, Seth, comes up and says, hey, have you seen the tape yet? I said, no, have you? He said, no. I said, well, it's not a big deal. No reason for me to look at it. It's probably a sex tape because that's what I thought it was. And so an hour before he goes on ESPN, Seth, our PR guy, says, I'm, I finally got it. I'm going to go check it out. If there's anything that I need to go back to you, I'll come down and grab you. Now, we're in a meeting because we're in the middle of a series with Golden State, 2-1. Seth comes down and says, hey, can I talk to you? I said, well, uh, we're about to have our meeting, you know, a team meeting. I'll talk to you afterwards. And he screams, Doc, I just watched the video. You need to get up right now and come with me and watch this tape. And the way he said it, and then when I watched the tape, I was floored. I was floored. I... Um, didn't know what to do either uh, because we were about to meet the team. Oh, my God. At that point, does the team know any of this? Have they heard the rumblings? They don't know anything about the tape, but it's coming out. So as I was watching it, it came out on ESPN. So the team got to see it before we had a chance. Oh, my God. So I got to go down to our team meeting. We're up in the series 2-1, if you remember that. Yep. I got to go down. It took me 20 minutes to figure out do I wear my Clippers stuff? Mm -hmm. Cause that's how appalling it was. Like I didn't want to represent the Clippers. And so I decided, okay, I'm the coach. I'm going to put the Clipper gear on and I walk in and none of the players have their shirts on. <laughs> so they all have other stuff. And they, you know, you've been in a meeting where everybody's got their arms folded. Yep. Like they were mad, but they were like, I felt early on they're mad at me. Yeah. That's when I always carry this, paper with me when I coach. I put it down on the table. I remember taking my whistle off and putting that down on the table. And I, I looked at them and said, all right, motherfuckers, you know what my name is? It's Glenn Rivers. I'm from Chicago. I'm black. And I'm mad as hell. And the moment I said that, the room changed. That's incredible, man. You didn't have, you, no plan. So did you walk in there and see how they looked and have to then on the fly yeah everything was on the fly that whole week was on the fly um it was crazy that week is the craziest week of my pro career because everything was on the you know andy went awol our president he just disappeared with sterling so i was running everything but didn't know it like i was coaching and next thing you know there's no andy so uh the one thing we, we did a lot of smart things but they're all luck like I, during that meeting, said, hey, listen, 
we have to have a message. I will say whatever you guys want me to say, but I just think it should be one message and one guy talking. Because if each one of you guys start talking, someone's going to be the story. Someone's going to say something so crazy that they become the story, and we need to keep the focus on Dallas Durham. And the fact that they agreed to that was huge because they told me what they wanted me to say, and I was the only – if you ever look back, I was the only guy talking. Uh, and then Chris had to uh, talk for the Players Association. That next day at the game, if you ever watch that game again, it's five seconds before game time. I am not out on the floor. You know what I'm doing in Golden State? I'm having an argument now with Andy Roser because they're on their way to the game. Donald Sterling was actually on his way to game four in Golden State. After this video came out, this man was showing up. After the video, Donald Sterling was going to show up and sit right across from our bench. I was cussing, yelling, he's not going to come. I'm going to have security meet him. He is not coming in this arena. He will not be allowed in this arena. Now, it's Golden State's arena, and I had no security. <laughs> I'm just – Yeah, you had your whole roster. Yeah, but I'm like, it's not going to happen. I said, Andy, I'm telling you, if he comes, I will make it a spectacle. And Andy back uh, – he, he knew it was wrong too, but he couldn't get down. And finally, I don't know what happened. I walked out. Uh, and I remember they were, the starting lines had already been announced when I was walking out. And uh, <laughs> the funny thing I will say is I get there and I sit down and I turn, I think, to Ty Lue, our coach. I said, we're going to lose tonight. I'm not sure about how much, but it ain't going to be good. <laughs> and I start laughing. And they were asking me, like, well, what the hell, where were you? And I told them the whole story. Like, I'm sweating. Like, I'm, yep. I'm, I'm, I'm in shambles. That's crazy, man. So, you know, he didn't show. We got blown out bad. And then we have to go back home. You know, for game five, I missed shoot-around. Or I was late for shoot-around because there was going to be an employee walkout. And there's no president. So I get a call on my way to shoot-around. Hey, Doc, you got to come down and talk to employees downtown. And that's not my job. I'm coaching the team. And they were like, we don't have anybody. We have nobody. You have to do this. So I drive down and talk them off the ledge. And that was when I called Adam. And that's the only time that I would say I panicked. I called Adam afterwards and say, hey, Adam, this is Doc. And I literally said, I need some fucking help here. I need some help. I'm coaching a team. The organization is running itself. We have nobody here. Andy's AWOL. And I remember yelling at Adam saying, and if you don't fire Donald Sterling, you better fire Andy Roser too. Get rid of both of them. Yep. And I remember Adam saying, don't worry about a thing. I got you. Um, I need you to get through this game. That was the only thing he said. I just need you to get us through this game. And, you know, we won the game somehow. Uh, and that's when he announced that Donald Sterling would be banned for life and Andy. I cannot believe that story. Like, I thought I knew the story. That's insane. No, it was insane. It was, it was crazy stuff. Crazy. I can't believe you guys won game five. I can't believe – I mean, it's obviously a testament to you that you were able to, in the heat of that moment, get the players to rally around one voice. I mean, the way you guys handled it. It took a lot, though. It took a lot out of us. Um, you know, that's when I learned about social media. You know, even though I knew guys were on it, like uh, Matt Barnes and, and Chris Paul and DJ, they were getting hammered every day by the outside forces on what they should do. You shouldn't play. You should say this. 
You should uh, protest this. You know, everybody's got something to say when they don't have any skin in the game, if, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And our players were getting hammered by it. Like, and I felt awful for them because, you know, it wasn't like they were getting hammered by negative. They were just getting hammered by telling them what they should do. And they had so many things in their head. The fact that they could focus and play basketball told me a lot about them. Do you think Donald Sterling cost you guys a championship potentially? I thought that was our year. Um, I thought if we were going to win it, that was our year. But honestly, no. I don't think we were good enough. Yep. You know, I thought we were talented enough. But I didn't think we were a good enough team. Yep. And at the end of the day, and you know it more than me or as me, you can be as talented as you want. If your team is not together and clicking, you're not winning. People don't realize how hard it is to win. They just think you get guys and you show up and you win. It doesn't happen that way. Your team has to be bought in 100%. Uh, and that was the best group that we had that year. And then after that year, it was over. So culture is everything in business, in life, in every way. Had to have been the biggest like reverse of culture. But talk to me about what Steve Ballmer brought to the organization that we don't see and why he's been able to turn this organization into what it is. Well, he was already a successful businessman, so he knew what good culture looked like. Uh, I would say this. Um, he allowed me early on to weed out the people that needed to be weeded out. When, we, when Lawrence came in, it was a big boost for me uh, because the one thing I did realize, being a coach and a president of a team is too much. Uh, if you're going to really do it, you can have the title and let someone else do it. Uh, but you can't do both. At least I, I thought it was too much. It was just, it was too hard. Um, and the biggest thing Steve did, did was allowed us to hire the right people. You know, uh, um, we were so undermanned. Uh, and the, when I was president for that year and a half, I think we were like 30 people undermanned uh, in our scouting and everything. And, and Steve allowed us not only just hire, he allowed us to go out and find the best people in each department and pay them. Um, so that's number one. Uh, the other thing is just his whole belief system and culture and doing things right and holding people accountable. There was finally accountability throughout our organization. And before, we didn't have that. So uh, he's been a terrific owner. Did Donald Sterling change the NBA? Did that incident change the NBA? I don't know. Um, I think it, um, it solidified the NBA as the pro sports that stands for more than being just pro sports. I think uh, what he did, with, with what Adam did um, in response to Donald Sterling, it almost told all the players, you can speak out against social injustice, against racism, against whatever you think is wrong, and you're going to still be okay in this league. And I thought that's what that did. I thought that changed the NBA forever in that way. Players freely spoke their mind. Um, they didn't shut up and dribble. And I thought that was, that was fantastic that they, they, they didn't and they still don't. You know what? If I ever asked you that question again, I would have asked it differently because – 
I don't even want to give Donald Sterling that kind of credit to say he changed the NBA. It's such an incredible league. But I think you did and your teammates did and your organization did that was left behind after what he did. You've been pretty outspoken in the last few months. I, I wouldn't even say outspoken. I just think you've been an important voice. I also think that like one thing that's always good for me to hear is when you speak to people that you look to for leadership, that you look up to, and you realize that like inside all of us are like, what the hell is going on in the world right now? Like you can try to talk to your kids about it. You can try to read on when the vaccine is coming, but none of us expected this in our lifetime. This wasn't, we weren't supposed to say social distancing. We didn't know those words. We weren't supposed to be wearing masks. Not what we expected. And we weren't supposed to have a president like this. No, no. How do you deal with this? Like, do you ever, like, how have you been the last six months in trying to lead your team and your family, but also like scared? Like, are, I'm sure you've been scared. No, I, I don't know. Scared might be a word because, um, you know, at my age, obviously with the virus, you are just concerned. Um, you know, I isolated for a while, um, um, which I probably do more anyway, because that's just who I am. I like my alone time, but you know, as it went on, um, you know, there's a lot of emotions. The selfish emotion was, wait a minute, the Clippers, we have a shot and we're going to not have the season. So straight up, I mean, that was just being honest. That's the selfish part. Like, let's go, yep. Let, let's play this thing. Uh, but then the bigger thing is, you know, people are losing their jobs, and um, man, it, it just no one. We who we this will be hopefully something that we'll never encounter again in our lifetimes. You know, uh, let's hope. And then we have this president that is flaming, uh, just flaming racial fires. I mean, he's it's like what he's doing is is damaging our country. To like people don't understand the damage that Donald. Trump has done uh, and is still doing. He's separating America. He is doing it intentionally. He could care less. He's doing it to try to win an election, not to be president. He just wants to win. And he'll do anything he has to do to do it. Donald Trump does not care about the people that he says he cares about. We all know that. Um, but just the racial part and and then, you know, we, we have the George Floyd thing. We have all this, this stuff going on. It's because we have a president that have made racism cool. Like, they, the racists feel comfortable. And, you know, as the, the, what's the guy, Andrew Gilliam, said about Donald Trump? I'm not calling him a racist. I'm just saying the racists think he's a racist. And, and, and so when you think that and believe that and the people who support him, it's just a dangerous place right now that we're at. If we don't get out and vote, Rich, like, come on now. Like, this is on us now. You know, yeah. it's the same speech yeah. that I would give my team. Like, hey, guys, we got the most talent. Yep. It's on us. It's the same way. Yeah, we got to look at voting the same way we looked at this virus and that it's life or death, that if you don't take the measures that you have to put in place to, to change this thing, we're all – we're all going to be worse for this. It's going to get worse and it's going to be scary. Yeah, but we, we can't do the same thing. Like there's a lot of people who didn't like Hillary Clinton. So I get that. But by not voting for her, allow Donald Trump. So there's times that I, I actually like Joe Biden. and I love Kamala. I've known her for years. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, it's not voting for the president. You're voting for what the president can do to the country. And 
you don't have to love the president, your choice, but that other guy, you do not want to think about it. If he gets four more years, as dirty as he's been, where he knew he had to be reelected, those next four years where he knows he's free, man, it will be bad. My my hope is that, and this isn't for the entire country, it's impossible. The people that love that man are going to love that man. It's sad, but it's the reality. But It is the reality. The people that voted for their pockets the last time need to understand that like the line between right and wrong because of him in my mind has been so clearly drawn in our country. And the ones that are on the side of right that happen to be Republicans, and listen, I know it all Republicans are bad. We all know that. That's what they used to say with black people. You know, I have very I have a lot of black people who are my friends. You know <laughs> <laughs> one of my best friends is Republican. Yeah, now we're saying that about Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> but you know that those same people that have kids that are not worried about what the difference in the economy will be are finally in danger. The president can finally affect them, you know, so your pockets are not what's more important. Are you optimistic about the future of our country? Yeah, extremely. Um, we've got to get the black males to vote. That's the key. Like, and not just vote now. You know, the thing I keep hearing is, you know, I don't get involved in politics. And my answer back is, well, politics gets involved in you. Like everything you do is something political. Yep. Uh, you know, so either you're going to get involved in it or you're just going to let politics keep defining your life and then blaming it. Yep. So you might as well vote and, and get involved. And what I'm hoping through this election is not just for this election, that the black male understands that he has power in his vote and he becomes political. I think that would be great. That's my goal. Doc, listen, man, leadership has never been more critical, and you are honestly truly one of the leaders I look up to. I appreciate your friendship and you getting on the show, man. Gianni, I'm sure I can speak for both of us. We've learned a lot, truly. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Good luck down there in Orlando, man. Thanks. Damn, G. That was an incredible interview. That was amazing. You killed it, Rich. So much information. He's like, he could lead a Fortune 500 company. He could lead a sports team, obviously. He could lead blue chip business on public stock market. I mean, the guy is incredible. Natural born leader. I'm still marinating over pressure is a privilege. Yeah, yeah, that was, he had a lot of nuggets, man. He's incredible. And hearing from him, just like those moments along the way and like the conversation with Pat Riley, who found the coach in him and then his kind of conversation with Ty Lue after that. There is that rare connection that, you know, a coach can see in, in what a future coach is. And I think that's what a great kind of leader has to do in general. And I, I try, I definitely try to pay more attention to those people now more than ever as I'm getting older. And, you know, I know I have a lot to learn about leadership and I think that's a part of being a good leader, you know, and I, I think Doc was really, really insightful. Right. And then now now that you mention it, I'm like looking back at it on my life, like, you know, you and I both played like a little bit ball growing up. But like, what are the qualities of these coaches that we like really resonated with or took away? Like my favorite coach, he was the most patient one. You know what I mean? So what are the qualities? Yo, by the way, bro, don't compare our basketball playing as kids. So you talk, I remember you, 
I remember when we when you tried to play me at the Barclays at Katie's photo shoot during media day, and you was like, "Yeah, I played ball," and I was like, "I asked you some question." You're like, "I stopped in eighth grade, though." I'm like, "Dude." <laughs> First of all, that day I was wearing jeans, couldn't get my rhythm right. Nah. Second of all, I am nice at ball, Rich. Still front. Nah, you're good. You're good. But I busted your ass the two times we played one-on-one. Third time's a charm. All right. Well, yo, two incredible conversations. I think we've been really lucky, man. Let's keep sharing stories and, and keep learning and we'll keep this conversation out of the office. I'll talk to you soon, G. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. I'll talk to you in a minute. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We out. We out.